Well, good morning, and uh, as has already been said, Merry Christmas. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas. I know that I did. I got a new pair of shoes to replace some loafers that had holes in them. This should get me through this new year. I got to spend time with family who came to our house to enjoy a Christmas meal and some gifts together. I got my voice back. For those who were at the 3.30 service, you might know uh, it was missing. And if I get every one of my Christmas wishes, today at 3.25, my wish will start to come true as the Bears do what they need to do uh, over the Packers. And I'm sorry for those of you who wished otherwise, but we'll go Bears. About 10 years ago, I was working at Kraft Foods and I got tasked with improving the salsa business. You may not have known that Kraft had a salsa business. It doesn't surprise me. It wasn't a very good business. It was under the Taco Bell name. And the first job that I had was to actually taste our salsa. And it was, in fact, bad salsa. (laughs) Just in case my taste buds weren't accurate, we had it tested against 12 other salsas. And it, in fact, was a bad salsa. It came in 12th. Some of those salsas were salsas that were Publix or Kroger or Dominic's brand. Still, ours didn't win. I wondered uh, if it were to have gone up against a Reagan-era generic salsa, you know, the jar with the white label that just says salsa on it, how it would have done. And I'm talking about the salsa from 1980s. (laughs) I still think we might have lost. Well, why is that? Obviously, Kraft knows how to make delicious foods. They're in that business. Obviously, there are appropriate food scientists and kitchen support that can figure out good recipes. How did we end up with a bad salsa? I will tell you it wasn't because we launched a bad salsa. We launched a pretty good salsa. But at some point, that salsa needed to grow, and people had ideas about a way we could grow it. You see, we had large pieces of tomato. We could go to a different source and get smaller pieces of tomato, and that would save us some money. In fact, we could remove some of the tomato and include tomato flavoring, and then add water to make up the volume, and add some starch so that water is thicker, and add some red food coloring so that thicker water looks tomato-y. We could take out the green peppers and replace them with the hydrated pepper flake, Maybe do that with the onion as well. And over time, each of these steps that made sense with a C for the company and made sense to the team trying to put it forth, took a decent salsa and created a bad salsa. One step at a time, a team saying, yeah, that's pretty good. We should go with that, resulted in a product that was far less than anything we wanted to put out. I'll put that story to rest and just let you know we turned that business around some. We included a lot more vegetable and brought it back. But I want to also reassure you, not every craft product can go that way. Because on the key craft products, things like Oreo cookies, Philly cream cheese, uh, A1 steak sauce, Blue Box, which is the macaroni and cheese product, on those key products, they have what's called a gold standard. And that gold standard formula defines how the product is to always taste. 
And before you can ever move away to a new formula, you have to test it against a gold standard. It's not just a team of people standing in a kitchen going, yeah, that's pretty good. You need to send it out to consumers and make sure that a large number of consumers agree beyond a shadow of a doubt that this product is better than the former product. And it dawns on me, a gold standard is a good thing, don't you think? Some place where you can return over and over and reset your expectations, where you can go back and make sure you're getting things right. Because you know that that's the place where you had it right. And what I love about Acts chapter 2, where we'll go today, is that that is a gold standard church, maybe even a God standard church, where when we look at Acts chapter 2, we get a sense of what is a church supposed to do. Now as you're turning there in your pew Bibles, it's on 1079 upper right, or maybe you know where to find Acts, or maybe you brought your own Bible. I will say the church, whenever it's described, isn't a building, it's a community. It's a place, it's the people. Here's the church, here's the steeple, but it's really about opening the doors. It's the people that make the community. And so as you turn there, let me just say something about God and community. God loves community. God, in fact, in Genesis 1, exists in community and all through Scripture. He exists in the Trinity in perfect communion with each other, with themselves. They get along, they work together, they create together, they redeem together, they restore together. They're in perfect community. God created Adam, and he looked at Adam and he said, it's not good for Adam to be alone. He needs community. Now he said this even before the fall in chapter 3. This is in chapter 2. It's not good to be alone. Community is important. We see this, the community that forms with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. They go under a community covenant with God. They become a peculiar people. They are reserved. They have a special place. Because community matters to God. Jesus gathers his twelve to be his community. Jesus teaches on community and says, we're to be a light to the world, salt to the earth a city on a hill. We are to be a community that gets recognized. Paul teaches on it. He says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with one another. Or later in Colossians, he says, be in unity with one another. Clothe yourselves in love. Community. Scripture defines that it's impossible to be a Christian alone because throughout Scripture there are the one another verses. You know them. Love one another. You can't do that alone. Forgive one another. Confess to one another. Be in harmony with one another. Bear one another's burdens. All of these things can only happen if there's another, if there's community. Even heaven is a community, isn't it? It's a new people in a new body, in a new place, with a new form of worship and a new Jerusalem. Community is the heart of who God is. So when we go to Acts chapter 2 to look at this gold standard church, in a sense we're going to look at a community and what it was that defines this community, what it is that we see about them. And this group that we find came out of essentially the disciples 
Now remember, when Jesus was arrested, the disciples fled in fear. That's what we learned from Mark. But they gathered together after the resurrection, and at Pentecost, they grew to a group of 3,000 people. And this is the community that we find. At 3,000 people, a church that was once small is now large, needs to start to define what is it that we're really about. And so it's recorded here. This is what's most important for our church. So let's read, starting in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves. Devoted is an interesting word, isn't it? Devoted is focused, committed. But to be devoted, you also have to make choices. Implicitly, there are things that you're not devoting yourselves to. And I think this is a brilliant thing for us to think about. These people were devoted to the community, but they might have missed out on something else. I say it's important to think about because I sense more and more people don't want to miss anything. They want to have it all. They want to connect in every possible group. Their work friends, their neighborhood friends, their school friends, their church friends, and all these different communities for which you are a part. And to do that, you keep track through your emails, through your voicemails, through your Instagram, through your Facebook, etc. There's a person who goes to demonstrate this by calling someone up on stage and they say to that person, catch this ping pong ball. And of course, anybody can catch a ping pong ball, most anybody uh, can catch a ping pong ball. And then they throw them one, and then another, and then another. Reasonable enough. Well, then they take six ping pong balls and they throw them all at once. And you know what happens? The person starts to flail about, and not only do they not catch one or two ping pong balls, they catch none. And they go on to talk about a new occurrence that's being looked at, being studied, this occurrence called continuous partial attention, which is a reasonable depiction of a lot of our lives, my life a lot of the time. Continuous partial attention is a form of high alert that the body has in reaction. If you're walking in the woods at night and you hear a sound, you go still and your body goes into continuous partial attention. It's focused on everything around you. And in that moment of high alert, stress uh, hormones are released. And one in particular, cortisol, is a universal connector. I have no idea what that means, but I read it and it started to make sense because they said when this cortisol stress hormone connects, it blocks out the places that peace hormones and happiness hormones, dopamine and serotonin, can connect. And so what they were making the link to was that people who live with continuous partial attention are living in constant stress and exhaustion. They're living unable to attain peace and happiness because they're trying not to miss anything. They're trying to catch all six ping pong balls at once in their life. I have a vision of Lucille Ball standing there trying to take one chocolate and do the right thing until the conveyor speeds up and now trying to take multiple chocolates and trying to keep up and eventually sticking them in her hat, in her apron, or in her mouth. 
and not doing the job at all. And sometimes I feel like that. Do you ever feel that way? Trying to do so much that you're not doing anything well. For the Acts chapter 2 church, they devoted themselves to the community. They knew that there were things they might miss, but they were okay with that because as long as they got this thing right, the community right, that was good. Well, what did they devote themselves to within the community? First thing we see is the apostles' teaching. They only had the words of the apostles. Some of it was getting recorded at the time. We, of course, have truth, biblical truth, God's word, the lamp to our feet, God's word, which gives us wisdom, gives us peace, gives us truth, gives us freedom, gives us a sense of what the world is all about, gives us the ability to understand and connect in our world. God's word is truth. They devoted themselves to truth. And the truth would set them free. So God's community is devoted to the community, but devoted to the truth. They're also devoted to fellowship. I get the sense that there were some earmarks to this fellowship. One is that they were authentic. Authenticity is an interesting thing. I was reading a book called Quiet. It's a New York Times bestseller by an author named Susan Cain. And in it, uh, Ms. Cain posits that there was a transition in 1920 where people moved from the heart of character development to a new phenomenon of personality development. And the byproduct of that is that people grew much more aware of how do they appear to others than who they are in their heart of hearts. So the way this plays out is essentially Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. You're focused on making good eye contact. You're focused on a good handshake. You're focused on repeating their name. You're focused on smiling back. You're focused on how do they see me and not who am I when no one sees me. A good God standard, gold standard community is a community in which people can be authentic one with another. They're not coming to a place and putting on airs. They're not pretending to be better than they are. They're simply being themselves. They're being people of character. Almost like in Facebook where someone gets so utterly devoted to being liked, to posting something and being liked by others. I read about uh, Facebook. One of the unique situations is that people start to imagine they have an invisible entourage that is dying to know everything about their life. So they're constantly looking at their life saying, what can I present? What can I share? What will people like? And they're on a show. They become actors in a show looking for people to check a box. And it becomes more important to be liked than to be authentic. But real community happens around authenticity. And the other problem with Facebook is that you lose what is a part of healthy relationships, vulnerability circles. Every healthy relationship has that. Imagine concentric circles. At the core are the 10 to 15 people in your life with whom you can be entirely vulnerable. A friend sent me a video recently of a doctor named Brene Brown. She talks about how vulnerability is what builds intimacy with people. 
When you're willing to take off the mask, become vulnerable with someone, it develops intimacy. And that's why it can only happen with about 10 to 15 in that inner circle. And each of the outer rings become different levels of vulnerability. But a guy named William Dunbar, who did brain research on the prefrontal cortex, said the aggregate of those rings at most should be 150 people. The Dunbar number, which is, I guess, known today and popular today, is a number that represents the number of people with whom you can have an actual relationship, both knowing who they are, what they stand for, and how they fit in your life. 150. When I look at that number, I think of Christmas Eve service, there were more than 150 people that I felt like I wanted to see and say hi to. When I think of all the college friends I left and told, we'll be best friends forever, I know it. Maybe it's healthy that I don't keep in touch with all of them. When I think of the numbers of people we invited to our wedding, when I think of the number of Facebook friends I have, and yet I learn that 150 is the number of healthy relationships one person can hold before it starts to diminish and crumble. I look at this community, they had fellowship, authentic relationships, vulnerable intimacy, a limited number of friendships, recognizing they're not going to be friends with everybody. Define who that group is. Another thing we saw is that this group was breaking bread. Now breaking bread obviously uh, hints at or teaches us about communion. But think about the place of communion in that early church life. It wasn't that long ago for them that they were hearing about communion for the first time and Christ broke the bread and said, do this in remembrance of me. And undoubtedly, it would also trigger in their minds a reminder of that horrible night where just hours later, Jesus is arrested, where hours after that, he's taken to the cross this dark, dark moment is what they're remembering when they break bread together. But it's not just the dark moment, is it? It's the fact that that body was given for them that even through their darkest moments, hope would arise, that death would be overcome, that Jesus would be resurrected, that God would demonstrate he's powerful even over our darkest moments, even over our worst times. So when we break bread, as the early church does, we're not just remembering the communion experience, we're remembering all the ways that God has been faithful in our lives. We're essentially building little towers of rocks, little cairns at which we say, God was faithful to me here. God was faithful to me here. God was faithful to me here. And the more we remind ourselves and rehearse the stories of God's faithfulness, the more we have heart and faith and courage to face whatever it is we face in our future or that some of you may be facing right now. When we break bread, when we rehearse the stories of God, we grow our faith by remembering that God is good, that God is faithful, that God is loving, that he knit you together, that he has a plan for your life, that he knows the days he has for you, hopes and plans to prosper you and give you a good life. That the work he's begun in you, he's going to be faithful to complete it. 
that God can do all things and that you can do all things in Him. That He can work all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. These are promises we remember when we break bread in a community of people rehearsing the faithfulness of God. The fourth part of this community is that they were devoted to prayer. This isn't simply the prayer that is spoken in the church. It's not ritualistic prayer. But it's a heartfelt connection to God. It's the kind of prayer that the disciples asked Jesus, show us how you pray. Tell us how you pray. Teach us to be like you. We see you getting away early in the morning. We see you connecting with God in a unique way. We see you come back with peace and with strength. This is a community devoted to prayer. And they remembered God's promises. They remember that where two or more gathered, God is with them. They remember that anyone who asks will receive. They remember that if they delight themselves in the Lord, he will give them the desires of their heart. They remember that they shouldn't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, they should present their requests to God. And in response, he gives their peace. His peace. You see, prayer mattered to this community. It was the essence of their relationship and connection with God. It was the promise of God's working in the future, knowing that God is a God who gives good gifts. Every good and perfect gift is from Him. And if we ask for a fish, by golly, He'll give you a fish, not a snake, it says in God's Word. And I'm sorry I just said by golly. Don't know where that came from. They were people who knew that God works through prayer. They knew it was by prayer that Abraham found a ram in the thicket. They knew it was by prayer that Jacob wrestled with God and was renamed Israel. They knew it was by prayer that Joseph, in the jail cell, was able to find his way out rise into a place in Egypt and deliver his own people. They knew that by prayer, Moses was able to stand with Aaron and Hur and defeat the Amalekites. They knew it was by prayer that Joshua was able to march around Jericho and bring the walls down. They knew it was by prayer that Gideon, though small in people, in stature, and in importance, was able to win the battle. They knew it was by prayer that Jehoshaphat saw the people flee and leave their gear. They knew it was by prayer that Jonathan climbed the hill and had victory. They knew it was by prayer that David was able to ask for forgiveness and renew a right spirit. They knew it was by prayer that Jesus calmed the storm. They knew it was by prayer that Jesus endured the cross. They knew it was by prayer that Peter prayed at Pentecost and spoke powerfully. And they knew it was by prayer that Paul discovered that God's grace is sufficient for you, and they know that it's by prayer that you too will be able to find guidance and wisdom and strength and hope and breakthrough and deliverance and peace in your life. Community devoted to prayer. Be community. The verses go on and we see that they're not only being community But they become unity. To be community, become unity. And as they become unity, I want to remind you, they don't lose their individuality. They don't lose themselves. 
they find themselves in a community that loves God and that knows God and where they find who God has them to be. They find their giftedness, their purpose. Look at the words here. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as they had need. Isn't that an amazing thing? They're all together. They hold everything in common. Whatever I have is here for you, Martin. Whatever I have is here for you, Jim. There's a sense of body. When one part suffers, the whole body suffers with it. We need to be together as one. To be community, you become unity. And it's powerful. Dallas Willard says that community means assuming responsibility for others. But he adds, paying attention, not just about your wants or will. There's a sense in which they're serving, they're caring, they have lavish hospitality, they're gracious, they're inviting, they're kind, they're not selfish, they're a place of irresistible influence, as some have said. But at the heart of this is not looking at what you hold or what you have as yours for your sake, but looking at it as an opportunity for future investment in kingdom purposes. When we had Charlie up here doing the Bema presentation, it was about that very idea. Or imagine you have a friend who's gone on a Caribbean vacation. I can imagine it at least. So there's this friend, and they get there, and they get to their room, and they go, I don't like those curtains. So they go off to look for a place where they can buy some new fabric and to get a sewing machine so they can make some new curtains for their room. And then they realize they don't like the furniture. It's not really style, style that they like or know. So they go off shopping on the island for some new furniture for the room and a better mattress. And in fact, they want surround sound because they want to watch the Bears beat the Packers, so they get that. They want a better coffee pot, because they like their coffee. And lo and behold, the weekends, and they return, and you say, how was it? Did you snorkel? Did you relax? Do you feel refreshed? And they say, no, I'm kind of wiped out. I was taking all my time getting the room ready. I forgot to enjoy being there. What? We, of course, know that that's ridiculous. But sometimes I wonder if I'm changing curtains and getting a better TV and not focusing on the community that God has put before me. If I'm not realizing the vacation he has for me is to love others, spend time with others, be with others, and yet I'm focused on better coffee. Reading on, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. They met in the temple courts, in the church, but they also met in their homes. This is a shameless plug for small groups. I'm sure that's why they put it in there. They met in their homes because what you do at church isn't the whole thing. You need to be a part of a group that meets in homes. But when they met, they met with glad and sincere hearts. 
They weren't sitting there saying, I wonder if they'll like the food I put out. They weren't worried about their furniture, the state of their house, and whether their sinks in their bathroom could be eaten out of. It just didn't matter. What mattered was the guest that was coming. They were focused on the guest. Will they enjoy it? Will they feel loved? Will they feel cared for? Will they feel listened to? And that's what a small group is. It's not a party. It's a chance to gather with people and love on them. And as you love on them, you're also loving on God because you're taking the things you've heard in the temple courts, Mike's preaching primarily here, and you're going home and saying, how does that apply in your life? They're not going out looking for the newest curriculum and more information because the information they have is already waiting to be applied. You see, there's so much opportunity to savor what we have and develop it and apply it and live in it that we don't have to worry about, do I have a seminary education enough to teach it? Just simply ask the question, what are you doing with what you heard last week? When Mike said this, it really made me think, have you ever had that in your life? And as you connect, you become community. You become one. You have a sense of connectedness and joy with each other. But it's an easy joy. I love these lines. Glad and sincere hearts that are praising God. What a great image of people coming together. It's not an easy thing. Garth made reference to these 14 men. They're not truly 14, uh, but there are 14 of us. Some are over here, some are right here, some were here last night. Those 14 men are part of a group that last year we decided let's join together. Every other week we're going to be together. And I'll tell you, some of those nights happened on Packers Bears Monday. Some of those nights happened when the Hawks were going for the Stanley Cup. Some of those nights happened when someone had a championship match for a team they're a part of. Some of those nights happened when kids had too much homework or a performance. But we were devoted. We said, whatever the cost, we're going to make a point of being together. Some guy said to his boss, no, I'm going. He said, well, you've got a lot of stuff to do. Well, I'm committed to these guys. There was a cost. We went away for five days, and I can tell you our wives thought there was a cost. And I recognize that. I don't mean to be selfish in this. But I will tell you, for each of us, and most of us didn't even know each other going in, but for each of us coming out now almost a year later, there's a sense of brotherhood. There's a sense of connection. There's a sense of honoring the work that God has done in our lives. God wants us to define these inner rings of community and devote ourselves to them. Put to work what we know about God. I want to be clear. This gold standard church that we can go back to periodically and look at is not a perfect church. They had issues. In fact, just a few pages later, we hear about Ananias and Sapphira. They were a young couple, old couple, I don't really know, but they had some land. And they decided to sell it because this other guy got all sorts of praise for selling his land and giving all his money. And they said, no one knows what price we got. What if we just give half and pretend it's the whole? One of the scariest passages in Scripture, they both in succession 
a couple hours apart, drop dead. And it says you've lied to God. This community is not a perfect community. No community is. But it's a community that recognizes our place under God, that devotes to one another, that looks to the apostles' teaching, that looks to the fellowship, to prayer, to breaking of bread, that commits to being unity, to looking at one another with a sense of commitment and purpose and ownership of your goodwill, that I am here to help you become better, just as you were here to help me. We are one together. And as that community, we've done some great things. As Mike had said, 31,000 boxes to Operation Christmas Child, countless gifts to children whose parents are incarcerated, about 40,000 or maybe more to Ghana for desks and perhaps fresh water in a school building. We've put in hours of volunteer time, hours of love. We're doing it, folks. I'm just encouraging, go back to the gold standard every so often and ask, what does church mean to you? What does it mean to be a part of a church? What does it mean to be in the church? What does it mean to be a part of this community? And I want to encourage you to always step up in it. Whatever it is, commit more. It'll never let you down. Two ways I would encourage even now. I think next week, Mike will move back to the book of Luke. And a set of messages called Amazed. Amazed is amazed at Jesus for his teaching and his miracles. Do that with someone else. If it's one person, if it's four people, that's a small group. That's a healthy small group. Talk to people about what you're learning, what you're getting. Gather with them regularly. Join a larger small group, but do it with someone else. The other thing is Alpha. We have a basic Alpha course, which gives people the opportunity by basic, I mean the primary course that it's always been, the opportunity to learn about the basics of the Christian faith, a chance to learn about a relationship with Jesus and how God and Jesus impact your life. But also we're offering the parenting course that Alpha runs and we're offering the marriage course that Alpha runs. These are on eight Tuesdays coming up January 21st and following. A meal a lesson, a chance to talk about it, a chance to grow. I encourage you to try one of those things. Listen to how the church is described in closing. When a church is committed to become community, when that same church becomes unity, here's the outcome. Everyone was filled with awe. Many signs and wonders were done. They were enjoying the favor of all the people. Everybody thought well of the church. Not a bad reputation, not too critical, not judgmental, not hating. Everyone thought well of the church. They enjoyed the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. When we're committed to being community, when we become unity as one body together, God does the work. Just like in 1 Corinthians 3, some plant, some water, but God brings the growth. We connect together 
We trust God for the rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this word. I thank you for this gold standard opportunity to look back at your church and to remind ourselves of what are those components that we want in this church. What are those components that we want as a people? And Lord, I pray in each of our lives we could step up in our part in this body and that we could truly be one together, committed to your kingdom purposes. Amen.